Welcome to Fifth Wall's Building to Zero podcast. The real estate industry is the world's single largest contributor to climate change. At Fifth Wall, we're on a mission to help the industry eradicate its carbon emissions and build to zero. I'm your host, Brendan Wallace. In today's episode of Building to Zero, I am joined by Miles Allen, head of the Climate Dynamics Group at the Oxford University's Atmospheric, Oceanic, and Planetary Physics Department. Miles Allen's influential work includes serving as the coordinating lead author for the 2018 Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Special Report on 1.5 Degrees. In our conversation, we discuss the true meaning of net zero and the tangible next steps the real estate industry needs to take to achieve that goal. Enjoy the episode. Well, Miles, thank you so much for joining. Where are you coming in from today? Oh, just the basement of our house in Oxford. Nice, nice. Fortunately, in a basement because it's pretty warm at the moment in the UK. Not not by the standards of, of the US, but it's it's warm for us. Well, I want to ask you about what's on your whiteboard right behind you, which is net zero, and you know how you personally became interested, obviously, in sustainability and net zero in particular. Can you just walk us through maybe the arc of your career and that interest? Yeah, well, all the way back in 1992, uh, the world committed to stabilization of greenhouse gas concentrations at a level that would avoid dangerous anthropogenic interference in the climate system. That was the sort of words of the 1992 Rio Convention. And so I spent probably the first 15 years of my career, along with many in my community, on the problem of, well, what was that stabilization level? What, what level of carbon dioxide should we be aiming for? And that turned out to be a really hard question um, because ugh, we could wander off into details, but it's just incredibly difficult to pin down how much warming to expect if you fix concentrations of carbon dioxide at some level and, and hold it there indefinitely. So in the late 2000s, a few of us started to ask ourselves, was there another way of thinking about the problem? And one result that emerged, a really sort of strikingly simplifying result, was that every tonne of carbon dioxide we dump in the atmosphere drives up global temperatures by about the same amount as the previous tonne, and it, temperatures remain high essentially indefinitely. So carbon dioxide has this sort of ratchet effect. The more you put into the atmosphere, the warmer it gets, and the only way to stop the warming is to stop dumping carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. So uh, if you like, I spent the first 15 years of my career making things more complicated, and then I've been trying to undo the damage ever since. That makes a complex ecological problem feel very knowable to the average, you know, sustainability conscious individual. And that's the conclusion you've come to. Absolutely. I mean, up until that time, people were arguing about, you know, should we be aimed for 50%? Should we aim for 80%? And then whose emissions should be in that 20%? You know, that, that's always the problem. If you say we've got to reduce emissions by 80%, then every company thinks, well, that's fine. We'll, we'll have that 20%. Not a problem. Um, and, and But what, of course, came out of this research was that, no, it's zero. You've got to get to net zero, which means we've just got to stop putting CO2 into the atmosphere. That sort of, I think a lot of people found that very helpful because it was such a, a simplifying step. And it, it's been embraced. It was taken up by the Paris Agreement. So it was you know, accepted by the world's governments in 2015, which, by the way, I think was a remarkable achievement of diplomacy for a new piece of science to come out in 2009 and then to be accepted in an international agreement only six years later. I think that 
that's phenomenal, actually, by the standards of international agreements. So I think we should give them absolute credit for that. And of course, since then, companies have stepped up. You know, mo many, many companies now have set themselves uh, net zero targets. You know, companies accept they've got to play their part in this. And this is the, the framing that people are now using, that, that everybody's aiming for net zero. Of course, the difficulty is not everybody knows exactly how to get there. Right. And, and today, you know, one of the things that obviously we focus a lot on is the real estate industry's imperative to get to net zero. And a lot of what we're seeing in the real estate industry is, you know, very bold, I think very ambitious commitments to net zero. Um, but a lot of it is kind of buttressed by the use of carbon offsets. And it, candidly, I think the real estate industry is also concerned about and not just capital markets and how capital markets are going to, you know, change their cost of capital, the industry, but local regulation, what is effectively local carbon pricing in the form of these, you know, carbon neutrality laws and local law, local law 97 in New York. You have a very unique perspective on carbon pricing. Can you walk through how your very elegant conclusion intersects with a concept like carbon pricing? Yeah, I mean, I think it does interact very closely because carbon pricing or, or pollution taxes, if you like, I mean, or pollution pricing, perhaps a better way of putting it, it's uh, economists love it because it's a very efficient way of bearing down on an activity that's causing some harm. It's you, you, instead of just letting people freeload by, you know, allowing them to do whatever it is they're doing that's causing harm, you make them pay for it. And then they think a bit more carefully about how much they do. So but that all makes sense if what you want to do is make people do less of something. But what is not clear to me is how you can use pricing alone. And by the way, this is now generally accepted by economists. We can't use pricing alone to get us to net zero because there are certain uses of fossil carbon that are so valuable. You know, how much, what, what sort of level of carbon price would stop you putting fuel into your rescue helicopters when there's a flood? I mean, it, it, it'd have to be pretty high. And that's what we actually see. I, I, that was a sort of extreme it, example. It, but the point is... Pricing would that, have to be astronomical, effectively. Well, well, that's actually what we see in the models, is that is in, in order to get to net zero, we see carbon prices going up to literally thousands of dollars per tonne of carbon dioxide, which, um, you know, uh, translates in, in more familiar terms to, you know, um, uh, I, I may get this mental arithmetic wrong because I'm not very good at gallons of gasoline, but I, I think it's sort of up in the sort of tens of dollars per gallon of gasoline. So it's 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 a sort of huge amount, Evidence. way beyond what anybody can ever imagine. Right. And it's also completely unnecessary because, and, and so so in a sense, these very, very high carbon prices, they only emerge because, or they would only emerge, if we fail to invest in the alternative, which is safe disposal of carbon dioxide, rather than dumping it into the atmosphere. So the, the crucial economic insight is that generating carbon dioxide is, in some cases, a tremendously economically productive thing to do. In other cases, it's not. And the vast majority, in fact, of the carbon dioxide we generate at the moment is pretty unproductive. I mean, you don't need to drive a Hummer to get to work. I mean, you can drive something very, very different and not put whatever it is, X right. tons of carbon into the atmosphere per kilometer. Anyway, so, so the point is that that's an example of relatively unproductive generation of carbon dioxide. And many buildings, I mean, here in the UK, 
our building stock is appalling. We, we have many, many old buildings with single walls, single glazing, single wall housing. It's just ridiculously inefficient. We are wasting carbon every year and we're sort of stuck in this cycle because a lot of it isn't owned by the people who occupy it. And, and you know, this, well, you, look, you, you work in the real estate industry, you know about all these problems with, with getting buildings more efficient. So th the real estate industry is, industry is definitely one in which there's a lot of relatively unproductive carbon and including a price or putting a price on carbon would help weed out some of that unproductive carbon. But I think we also need to be realistic that it's not going to get us to net zero. And we need to start thinking now about how we how we actually are going to get to net zero, which means very simply, net zero means every ton of carbon dioxide generated by continued use of fossil fuels needs to be safely and permanently disposed of, not dumped in the atmosphere. That's what net zero has to mean. And so companies investing for the future should have a plan to make sure that all the carbon dioxide that's generated by the remaining use of fossil fuels in every activity they're involved in is got rid of. All that carbon dioxide is permanently disposed of and not dumped in the atmosphere. And this brings us, of course, to the thorny issue of offsetting that you mentioned as something the real estate industry is, is having to grapple with. And, and that's an area we, we've actually done a lot of work of, on in, in Oxford Net Zero recently. And maybe, the, I mean, I'd be really interested to, to, to drill further into that if you're interested. Yeah, and so, so just to almost summarize what, what, what your point of view is, is that, you know, if you think about dumping CO2 into the environment, there's actually no amount and there's no price point that will appropriately, the you know, invisible hand of, of Adam Smith is not going to efficiently just create a world where we don't. And so we, it's almost like we can't internalize, we can't appropriately price in all the externalities of any ton of CO2 that we put into the environment. It's almost like the way we think about nuclear waste, right? If someone was like, hey, you know, you can dump nuclear waste in, in rivers as long as you pay a super high tax. It's like, no, you can't. There's no amount of nuclear waste that you can dump in a river and there's no amount of tax that will compensate for that. So what almost like you're you're saying is very elegant. It's it's an effective prohibition on it, but there's a there's an element there before we go on obviously to offsets is is around sequestration and you know embodied embodied carbon that, that exists today. But like how do you think the real estate industry should then therefore be thinking about look, I have all this operational carbon. Um, that I can't really get rid of in, in my assets, at least today. Sure, I, I buy offsets today, but do you think material solutions that are sequestering of CO2 are the real gateway that the real estate industry should be looking to and investing? Is that kind of what you're saying? Yes, I think the real estate industry should be screaming very, very loudly for sequestration to be developed much, much faster than it's happening at the moment. To, to achieve net zero, to stop climate change, we need to be reburying one ton of carbon dioxide for every ton generated by continued use of fossil fuels by mid-century. And at the moment, globally, we get rid of about 0.1%. So we have a, we've already committed, apparently, to increase that fraction a thousandfold over the next 30 years. Right. It's not even going up at all. It's flat. And, and, now, what is that, and, and Miles, what is that 1%? Where, where is that 1%? 0.1%. If only it was 1%. Sorry, that's, that's, the, that's the carbon dioxide at the moment that we re-inject back into the Earth's crust as right. a fraction of the carbon we dig up, of the carbon dioxide we generate from the carbon we dig up in the form of oil, coal, and natural gas. And I, you so, know, I guess 
what, I, what I'm asking, Miles, is can you, and maybe this is a pun on words, can you concretize that for people, make that more, sure. where is that 1% happening? So of it mostly, uh, a lot of it's happening in the US, actually. This is carbon dioxide where you compress it, uh, you capture it from a power station, from a power plant or from a factory or something. You compress it to pressures where it forms a liquid and you re-inject it back underground. And if you re-inject it in the right place, it stays there. And this is actually used. The reason the 0.1%, as I say, sadly not 1% yet, but it's got to go up. Um, the reason that 0.1% is being put back underground is actually primarily nothing to do with the environment. It's uh, it's because it's quite it's used um, to flush out oil in enhanced oil recovery. But but it, it you know it, it's it's happening which is a good thing, but, and so the technology's there, we know exactly how to do it, but it needs to be scaled up a thousandfold. And, and that's what's not happening at the moment. And the reason this is particularly important for the real estate in industry is it opens options for the real estate industry. So for example, here in the UK, we are uh, struggling with replacing uh, an entire country's worth of home boilers if we're to completely decarbonize our home heating system. So just about every house in the UK has a gas-fired boiler, which is venting CO2 straight out of the wall into the atmosphere, and there's nothing we can do about that CO2. So everybody's thinking, okay, well, let's replace all these boilers with heat pumps. That's going to be expensive. If they're, you know, if they're air source heat pumps, there's going to be implications for local environment. If they're ground source heat pumps, it's going to depend on, you know, there's, and it's going to cost. It's going to cost a lot. And everybody's wondering how we're going to pay for it. Now, another option, which may not be the right option everywhere, but almost certainly would be a better option for many parts of the UK and certainly many parts of the US, would be to decarbonize gas. Uh, by gas, I mean, of course, I'm using the UK natural gas. Um, uh, home heating gas, decarbonize gas upstream. So either take this carbon dioxide out of the gas as it comes out from under the North Sea and pipe hydrogen to houses. So you don't need to put in heat pumps. You can They can burn hydrogen in the home or even go one step further and capture carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, re-inject it underground and pipe natural gas to the, to the houses so that you're you're balancing the carbon dioxide. It doesn't have to be the same carbon dioxide. Nobody cares if one ton of carbon dioxide is the same as any other one, but you've just got to balance it. And you're saying that fungibility of CO2 provides a certain modularity in how you architect regulation in the sense that, sure, like it, you, you can actually continue to burn some fossil fuels, but you have to be in sequestering an equal... Uh, but opposite uh, amount in actual statutory regulations that aren't pricing based. This is actually just like a rule. That's what's that's what's going to be needed. And in fact, you've got a rule in the U.S. which is exactly what's needed, and and hopefully will get tightened up in the right way and applied to more sectors. To that will that will get us to net zero. And I'm talking here about the California Low Carbon Fuel Standard at the moment. The Low Carbon Fuel Standard just applies to vehicle fuels. But what what would happen if you applied the Low Carbon Fuel Standard to fossil fuels? Every ton of fossil fuel coming into the US, either out of the ground or, or in through a port, you apply a low carbon fuel standard. So a certain number of tons of CO2 have to be disposed of, um, well, a certain number of kilograms of CO2 to start with, because you, you, you'd ramp up the fraction just as the low carbon fuel standard works. And so that you're aiming for 
100% decarbonized fossil fuels by mid-century. That would be a great way of solving the climate problem because it would, of course, make the fossil fuels more expensive because, you know, the buyer of the fossil fuel would have to pay for all that sequestration. Um, but it wouldn't mean you've got to interfere in every little sector of, of, of society to, to, to chase down all those remaining emissions you just do it upstream. We know exactly how fossil carbon comes into an economy. And yet that's not the point at which we address the problem. We try and address it at the point where carbon dioxide flows out of the economy, which is, you know, millions and millions of sources, whereas fossil fuels come into an economy through, you know, primarily through a bunch of sources you could count on two, two or three hands. But it's a much, it's, again, it's, it's elegant, but it's also blunt, right? It's a, it's a blunt instrument. It's, a, it's effectively, a, it's a prohibition, but it's also a kind of balanced budget of, you know, part, you, you can't actually, uh, at an upstream level, you just simply prohibit, right, more fossil fuels and the associated CO2 emissions that derive therefrom from coming into the economy, unless there's an equal and offsetting sequestration of that carbon or basically a prohibition on it entering the atmosphere. There's a, it's almost like balancing a budget. It's like balancing your yes. budget, but just your carbon budget. Well, we have to balance the budget. And I, I mean, I don't, I'm, I'm worried about the word prohibition. I prefer a licensing requirement. If you want to sell this stuff, you've got to get rid of the CO2. And that's what, you know, that makes sense to me. I think in the end, this is how we're going to solve the climate problem. Unfortunately, we're sort of trying everything else first. And uh, this is because this kind of simple, you're calling it, you're calling it blunt, but if you'd like it, it's kind of laser focused. It's focused on the one point Elegant. where we can control this thing because we know exactly what comes out of the ground and we know exactly what comes in through the ports because it's all, you know, that industry is incredibly tightly regulated. It's, you know, everybody knows what's going on. So if you, you know, took the concept of a low carbon fuel standard and simply applied it to fossil fuels, it would be transformative. Now, for the real estate industry, of course, I, I want to be a bit careful here because I don't want to suggest to anybody that that means, oh, it's the fossil fuel industry can fix this, so we don't have to worry about it. What other industries would need to understand is that if we decarbonize fossil fuels in this way, and I firmly believe that one day, having tried all the alternatives, we will, it will make fossil fuels more expensive. It will make certain products like hydrogen, for example, much cheaper because by buying hydrogen, by sort of designing your building to run on hydrogen rather than running on natural gas, you could kind of benefit from both sides of the equation because your hydrogen supplier would be able to sell their CO2 as a, you know, to, 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 to allow other people the license to, to bring CO2 into the economy. And, and so, you know, a, a supply of CO2 would suddenly become a, a valuable commodity. And it's because it's possible even that real estate, you know, the, the biggest real estate uh, operators might even, you know, think about um, heat networks and things where they do generate CO2 locally, but then capture it and dispose of it, get rid of it directly themselves. So let's talk about carbon offsets, right, which is today I think kind of become the crutch that the real estate industry has relied on as a pathway to get to net zero. What's your view of carbon offsets as a viable long-term instrument for the real estate industry to achieve net zero? So there's one kind of offsetting, which is absolutely fine, which is essentially what I've been describing. If you bury CO2 or pay somebody else to bury CO2, equivalent to the CO2 generated by your activities, then it's not if atmospheric. you'd like, mm -hmm. it's non-atmospheric. 
I mean, that, that's, I mean, if they capture, they could capture that CO2 from the atmosphere and then bury it, and then you can generate CO2 yourself. And that would be, I guess, a form of offsetting. And this kind of offsetting works fine because it ensures that fossil CO2 is refossilized after it's, it may have moved through the atmosphere, get, but it gets put back where it came from, back underground. And where, so, so at, at the one extreme, that is a, a completely viable, completely sustainable offsetting proposition. It's not the way most people approach offsetting right now. Um, it is available, by the way, if you want to pay somebody to capture CO2 from the atmosphere and re-inject it back underground, you can do it. There's companies out there, um, Climeworks, for example, or Carbon Engineering, You can, but you'll be paying them hundreds of dollars per ton of CO2 to dispose of it. This is, this is much more expensive than the kind of offsets that are on offer at the moment, which primarily consist of two things. Either paying people to emit less than they said they would have done if you hadn't paid them. And that is probably the most problematic form of offsetting because now that the whole world has collectively decided in the Paris Agreement that we're all aiming for net zero, it sort of suddenly no longer really makes sense to claim that helping somebody else to reduce their emissions is somehow compensating for your emissions because they've all committed to net zero anyway. So everybody should be reducing their emissions regardless. So it's sort of that kind of transaction doesn't make a lot of sense anymore, I think, in the post-Paris world. The other kind of transaction, I'm, I'm simplifying, of course, here. There's, there's a whole sort of panoply of different types of offsets available. But the other broad basket are where you're paying somebody to capture carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, but to do it using nature, using forests or, or ecosystem restoration or something to capture CO2 from the atmosphere. Now, there are huge advantages to doing this, and there's a lot of excitement around these so-called nature-based solutions at the moment, um, because we need to restore our biosphere. We, we've, we've degraded the carbon content of the biosphere very badly over the past century. We need to put it back. So that's a that should be a priority. And funds in nature-based solutions can also deliver lots of benefits to wildlife, to biodiversity, and so on as well. So they're an absolutely essential part of the puzzle now, but it's also absolutely essential for everybody to be honest that that can't last for, for more than a, a decade or two. You can't turn rocks into trees forever. And if I put it that way, it should be pretty obvious to people that that's true. Okay, so, so the idea that you can burn fossil fuels and compensate for that activity by planting trees, that's that's got to be a temporary solution. So any company that's using nature-based offsets today should have a plan for how they're going to transition to geological offsets, to putting carbon dioxide back underground within a couple of decades, I would argue. And that's, again, that there's a certain not in science intuition to that. I like the way you put that, meaning we're burning fossil fuels, we're burning fossils, putting CO2 into the environment. And kind of one way of balancing the budget, which was kind of the first order thing you mentioned, is a private market transaction, which is that, you know, I say, okay, I, I'm more productive than you, Miles, therefore I'm going to buy, you know, I'm going to pay you a, a sum not to pollute. So because I'm higher, I, I generate more profit, I, I can effectively execute that private transaction. Your view is, in the end, that's a short-term solution, a kind of bridge to nowhere, and the private market won't truly internalize all of that cost on a peer-to-peer -peer basis. Then secondly is the kind of uh, ecological bridge of, okay, we're going to burn fossil fuels, but we're just going to reforest, and we're going to kind of restore uh, our biosystems to, to kind of a, a, a normalized level. 
but it just doesn't make sense, right? There's, there's too much earth and, and too little like soft tissue. It, it doesn't make sense in the long term. It makes huge amounts of sense in the short term. That's why it's a little bit of a difficult conversation, this one, because right. I don't want to discourage anyone from investing in the biosphere. You know, please don't, don't, don't stop invest. We need to invest in the biosphere. We, we desperately need to invest in, in halting the decline in biodiversity on the planet and all, all for all sorts of reasons. So, but we've just got to be realistic about what it can deliver in the long term. You know, we, we published a paper of just a few weeks ago pointing out that even the most optimistic estimates of nature-based climate solutions carbon uptake might shave a tenth of a degree off global temperatures by mid-century. Now, fossil fuel emissions are driving up global temperatures by two tenths of a degree per decade. So that puts it into perspective. It's it's useful, but it's only only a few years of fossil fuel emissions. Right. And and I guess when you think about the, the last bucket of actually kind of almost refossilizing CO2, right? Just, Which is a great way of thinking about it. Yeah, it's just it's just saying, okay, it came out as you know fossil fuels and we're just gonna put it back in and sometime in the future it'll probably turn back into something that people can burn again. I don't know if that's actually true over a long enough geological time horizon, but is that a simplistic conclusion for the it, it, yeah, I mean, it does turn back into rock, um, but it turns back into less useful rocks um, because it's it's down there in the form of, of a, a sort of low energy CO2. So digging up fossil fuels, burning them and putting them back as carbon dioxide is not a indefinitely sustainable activity, but it is a way in which we could, you know, continue to generate energy from the Earth's crust for hundreds of years without doing any serious environmental damage. And then there's a the question, well, you know, as, as somebody once put it, you know, the, the Stone Age didn't end because we ran out of stones. I mean, if, if you're in that sort of situation, yeah, you know, we probably will move on from using fossil fuels at some point. But it's more, it's, we're going to have to stop fossil fuels from causing global warming before we stop using fossil fuels. That's a, that's a really profound truth that people need to grapple with. Because everybody tends to think about this problem along the lines of, well, we're going to solve it by just stopping using fossil fuels. But as soon as you start to think about all the different ways in which fossil fuels are used in, in the world economy all over the world, it, you soon realize that, that that's simply not the way we're going to solve this problem. We have to stop fossil fuels themselves from causing global warming. And that will make them more expensive. So we will use less of them. Eventually, we'll stop using them because we'll move on and use something else. But, you know, in the meantime, we have to, you know, we can't afford to wait for the world to stop using fossil fuels. We've got to stop global warming first. And, and implicit, right, in a lot of your conclusions is the assumption that with time, right, enough time, we technologically progress to a world where we don't need to rely on fossil fuels entirely for the, the needs of humanities, you know, of human human progress and human flourishing, which does, will require energy, can come from cleaner sources, and then we, we are not going to have to worry about it. And like, when you think about that, one of the challenges we've seen, this is going back to the real estate industry, is that we're all betting on R&D, right? We, we, are, we are making a massive, secular, humanity-wide bet that R&D closes this gap as fast a time frame as possible. And Today, the real estate industry is not really investing in R&D. They're doing the kind of, uh, they're kind of cleaning up the mess after they make it, right? With offsets and kind of some, some very limited things. But today, the average building, even with the best retrofitting technology and the best energy efficiency technology, still only reduces about half of its operational footprint. 
And so you'd expect, correspondingly, the real estate industry to be investing an enormous amount in the R&D to close the rest of that gap, but they're not. And I guess, what are the best paradigms you've seen to encourage private sector, in this case, the real estate industry, to invest in the R&D and the science that can actually close that gap? So tabling the issues around sequestration and kind of the budgeting there, what are the best incentive mechanisms you've seen to get the private sector to do that? I think, I mean, my feeling is that is that regulation works in the sense that companies will do anything to stay in business. So if they know that it's a licensing requirement to keep doing what they do to do X, then they just do X. I mean, it was revealing when I was, you know, again, sort of going back to the sequestration thing, when I, I was talking to a, an oil and gas company about our prospects for meeting the 1.5 degree goal, and somebody asked me, do you think there's any chance of us doing it? And I said, well, if you had to decarbonize your product, you know, get rid of one ton of CO2 for every ton generated by the oil and gas you sell, by 2050, would you be able to do it? And they just said, yeah, of course you would. If we had to, we'd just do it. I mean, they, they absolutely would. And so I believe if the real estate industry had to decarbonize our building stock, it would do it. Of course, it would make real estate more expensive. And, there's, and that's, you know, simply doing it by fiat um, is probably not going to be the most effective way of doing it. But, you know, setting progressive standards and, uh, you know, I think I think can work. And, and for the real estate industry to sort of get together with governments to work out, you know, pathways for tightening standards that actually get us to the destination of net zero, I think is is probably the most valuable thing that can happen at the moment. And I think the, the reason I think this, it's really important to think about standards over the entire pathway is that you can sort of set standards now to get your carbon footprint down by 10, 20% or something, and that's fine, but they don't actually deliver the innovation you need to go all the way to zero. So it's, it's really important to think about the, the, the standards path that will actually get us to a, a net zero compliant building stock in time. And bringing the fossil fuel industry into this conversation as well, I think is really important. At the moment, we tend to, you know, there tends to be a separation of that. People just decide I'm going to use this type of fuel, electricity or gas or whatever, to, to heat my building or to power my building. And then that's it. There's the, that's to, that decision's made. And then they sort of work out how to use as little as possible of it and so on. But what, you know, eventually we're going to have to have uh, real estate operators engaging with their energy suppliers to make to, to maximize the carbon benefits of balancing the demands of the building with the the uh, the, the supplier. So for example, if you know if electricity supply is dominated by renewables, it's expected to be much more intermittent. Our building stock, you know, we're, we're all worried about batteries at the moment. Our building stock is kind of a giant battery. It it sort of cushions the, the energy content of a building in just in its in, in in the heat in its walls is an energy cushion which could be used exactly you know to 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 actually provide some capacitance into a renewables dominated energy mix but i'm not sure those kind of questions are those kind of discussions are happening people are just thinking well you know i'll have electricity i'll, I'll turn the switch on and so that's why i think we need we need smart regulation which drives um sectors together vertically so that people think about the full chain 
of you know from the point where the carbon comes in to the point where the building is nice and warm and you or, see or cool in the summer this is one of the the concerns the real estate industry has is that you know when it comes to regulation federal and local level there is this kind of balkanization of policy where it's like these are the standards for you know the real estate industry these are the standards for the energy industry but i, I like the way you know in our the prior dialogue there's an intuition to the fact that 40% of CO2 emissions come from the real estate industry, right? So we're taking stuff out of the ground, we're burning it, and that energy is being used in the world around us. I always say like the economy happens indoors, right? So it's not surprising that, you know, the, the built environment is responsible for 40% of CO2 emissions, the stuff that doesn't move, the actual structures we built around us. But exactly as you said, it's somewhat of a cushion in the sense that, or, or, or a giant battery in some sense, because to the extent we, in an interconnected way, change regulation on the fossil fuel industry, right in parallel with the real estate industry, converting over to renewables, the fact that we have all this roof space, I'm in Manhattan right now, and I'm looking out and like, there's not solar on any of these roofs. But just to be clear, Why not? The, the tar is absorbing would-be energy that could have otherwise powered the building. And there is, it's almost like the real estate industry is this kind of culprit that has been hiding in plain sight. But in some ways, we, we can then, therefore, rely on our intuitions that it is one of the very obvious stalls to this problem, if we think about it at a very basic level, which is that every building should effectively be its own power plant, right? Yeah. Like, we should miniaturize the concept of power production at the asset level, at the home level, at every entity, at every physical instantiation of you know human society should be its own power plant. So it's, it's, it's an interesting dynamic. And it changes the, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting dynamic, but it changes a lot of the way you think about things, a lot of the way you think about a building. You know, uh, we're, we're used to sort of learning how to operate our iPhones and so on, but but we we think of buildings in a in a much more sort of medieval way in some ways. It's just sort of things we go in out of. So 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 yeah, I mean the, the, our buildings could be so much more than just passive walls that that we occupy. And yeah, that's 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 the opportunity. I want to ask just like some lightning round questions just to get sure, yeah, fast pithy answers um, from you, and and we'd love to hear your your reflections on this. So can you describe? a discussion or a debate that you've had with a climate change denier and what was the one salient argument that got them to see the light i think it's recognizing that um the solutions generally whenever i meet climate change deniers within a few minutes it turns out that they're not really that preoccupied by the science at all they just really don't like some particular climate policy that they feel is being rammed down their throats and i think one of the things that actually a lot of people have found interesting about my perspective is that i don't like a lot of those policies either because a lot of them are beside the point we haven't done a very good job of focusing climate policy on what really matters and there's far too many policies out there that are just there because people want to achieve something. So they feel that they, by calling it a solution to climate change, it's more likely to happen. And that sort of really gets the goat of a lot of people who don't like the climate issue. And that's where I think, you know, we could actually make a lot more progress is recognizing that people aren't actually denying the science. What they're not liking is the way every policy and, and the dog uh, is, is sort of attached to climate change 
as a sort of portmanteau cause, um, which which isn't helpful um, and 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 isn't accurate either. Is there one person that is fighting against climate change that really inspires you personally, and why? Well, I've been very inspired, as a lot of us have, of course, by uh, Greta Thunberg, um, and I think in particular the fact that she just sort of looked at this and you know with the clarity of of, of a kid just said this doesn't make any sense, um, and I think the her and of course the school strike movement that she's uh, that she's kicked off. I think that it's been really inspiring over the past few years. I mean, the most inspiring conversations I've had have been with you know teenage, generally girls. Interestingly, it seems to be a very very uh, uh, female led uh, uh, movement that because you know they they really are asking the blunt questions that uh, we've spent two decades kind of rather tiptoeing around. What advice would you give the next generation of climate activists? I would say don't let the fossil fuel industry get away with it at the moment. And don't let them get away with always changing the subject. At the moment, we seem to be willing to talk about almost anything. But the main point, which is how do we stop fossil fuels from causing global warming? And we've got to stay focused on that one thing. What is one climate change related book that has most influenced you and you would encourage others to read? Oh, I, I, well, well uh, a long time ago, actually, I was asked to review Kim Stanley Robinson's 40 Signs of Rain. And it's a great, it's a great story. Um, and it's, uh, I strongly recommend it um, if you want uh, a sort of climate related uh, uh, fiction. But uh, in terms of uh, sort of cl climate, uh, one, one book actually that, that uh, people might not have heard of, there's a, a book by um, uh, Paul Edwards. Uh, he's a, a, a sort of philosopher, social scientist. He, are called a vast machine and it's about how climate science works and how it's evolved and how meteorology has evolved as a discipline and modeling of our atmosphere has evolved as a discipline and that, that's a really interesting read as well. I'm afraid mostly I read articles with long titles and relatively few readers. Um. <laughs> Well, Miles, this has been so interesting to get your perspective. And I think your your thoughts um, in particular as it relates to the real estate industry are really important because the industry is, you know, struggling with how it embraces its culpability and its responsibility in, in climate change. And I think some of the the points you made about the, the reliability of our intuitions and kind of elegant solutions, I think is one of the ways that they should start to think about solving this problem. So thank you for sharing all of your thoughts. Well, thank you. It's been fun. Thanks, Miles. Thanks for listening to this episode of Building to Zero. All of these episodes and more are available on our YouTube channel. To learn more about Fifth Wall, visit our website at www.fifthwall.com.